Well, it's our joy this morning to take our Bibles once again and return to our study. We return to our ongoing series in the book of Revelation. And I want to just kind of caution us at the outset, maybe not a caution, but just uh, some introductory things, that most of what we say this morning is just that, introductory and uh, ancillary, really, to all that's happening in the text that we are going to focus on over the next couple of weeks, we find ourselves returning to chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19. And as I was privileged to study this week, my mind kept returning to one term. Not a term that you find in the text as a word, but the term that surrounds this, and that is the term amazing. I was often told when I was going through my seminary education that if everything is emphasized, then in reality nothing is emphasized. And I think we understand that principle, that if we speak of all things with the same descriptive terms, then When something is distinguishable, it no longer is distinguishable because the same terms are used to describe everything. And I think that has happened with the term amazing. Amazing. It's used and overused to describe, even in our day and age, the most trivial of things. The word amazing used to carry the idea of something that was beyond comprehension, something that would cause great surprise, something that would bring sudden wonder. Go to the dictionary and that's how it's described, that's how it's defined as a word. But today that certainly isn't how it's used. In fact, just this past weekend, someone on the football field, made a a really good play. And that play apparently caused sudden wonder. Apparently that great catch that was made was a great surprise in many's eyes. It was something apparently beyond comprehension because it was described as amazing. Really? Football catch? amazing. This time of year when advertisers are vying for every dollar that God has given you to be a steward over, they describe every product from electronics to toys to even wool socks. All of them are touted as those things that if you just have them, then you will be in immediate sudden wonder. Because they are touted as amazing. Really? You mean the socks that I wear in my boots are amazing? Cause me to suddenly wonder about life that I've never thought about before? Even normal events of life, like getting out of bed, making a meal, cleaning up after yourself, are now touted by some, even in social media, as being amazing accomplishments. Once again, I think, really? These, these kinds of things are, are what we describe as, as beyond comprehension events? Really? Everything today is amazing. 
The power outage was amazing. In our self-loved, crazed world, in the I'm okay, you're okay, self-driven bent of the heart of man, I'm not just okay anymore, now I'm amazing. But any wonder, I think, that when we as Christians, when we come to the Bible, far too often we are no longer taken with great surprise. We are no longer amazed at what should be and truly is amazing. I was thinking about this. If everything around us is amazing, if everything we do is amazing, if every person is described as amazing, then the things that are truly amazing are no longer amazing anymore. As I was studying this week, I kept wondering to myself, I wonder if we see this as amazing. I want to say to us this morning that if we are here today in this place and we look at this text together, if it is not truly amazing to us, if it does not catch us by sudden wonder and great surprise, if it isn't beyond comprehension, then I dare say that we have never spent any time really pondering who we are before the one who created us and how insignificant we are on the scales of God's creation. If we want to have a comprehensive definition of amazing, we don't need to turn to Webster. We need to turn right here to Revelation. Here in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, there is a sudden wonder in our amazing, sovereign, supreme ruler There is a great surprise in an amazing supper that God is bringing about. And there is a beyond comprehension moment in an amazing slaughter of all those who reject Jesus Christ. There is a supreme ruler. There is this incredible supper and a slaughter beyond comprehension. Maybe after we see all of this, maybe what is just normal will no longer be so amazing to us. Follow along as I read chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all of the birds, which fly in mid-heaven. Come, 
assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and great, small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest? They were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now we have to realize something right out of the gate. There is only one answer to the world of trouble that we live in. Politics will not fix this world. Education will not fix this world. Having an attitude of tolerance will not fix the troubles of this world. There is only one fix for this world, and that fix is described right here. The very same one who has been described throughout the Old and the New Testament The only answer for the world is Jesus Christ. And every part of humanity that rejects Jesus Christ will end facing the fierce wrath of His coming. And those who have embraced Him by faith will go on in triumphant peace forever and ever and ever. So, if you're here today wondering if the world is going to get better, the answer to your question is no, not without Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ is the only answer. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, we get to see the grand finale on display. Right here, is the climax of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The climax of revelation is reached right here in this passage. This is the point to which all the previous things that we have learned, all the previous events that we have walked through, are driven towards this very moment. Remember, this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the uncovering of Jesus Christ in its fullest sense. And in chapters 1 through 3, Jesus Christ was revealed in the midst of the church. Remember that? Jesus Christ is there, standing in the midst of the lampstands described in chapters 1 through 3. He is the one who is in the midst of the church. There, in chapter 4 through chapter 19, verse 10, which we finished up with last time, Jesus Christ is seen in the midst of heaven on the throne. He is seen there bringing justice upon the earth and upon all who reject Him. Now, here, He is revealed as the great supreme ruler. And He is shown to the earth 
as being what verse 16 says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Thinking about this this week, don't you find it interesting that within the heart of mankind, they gravitate to a Jesus who came in the manger. I mean, especially at this time of year, mankind sings about Jesus in the manger. Even the pagans will sing about this baby born, this Jesus who was born in a manger. He came, the Gospels tell us, as a baby. Emmanuel, the Old Testament says, God with us, born in obscurity. Not with a lot of fanfare, not with a big parade, not even a place for a proper and normal birth. His birth announcement was made to just a few shepherds in the field. A few years later, of course, leaders came to see him. But most of the world was unaware. Most of the world didn't have a clue that God came to earth. Most of the world didn't know that he had stepped into humanity. And people today, they, they desire that Jesus. They desire the baby Jesus sitting there uh, on his mother's lap. Why? Because they say, that Jesus is kind. That Jesus is loving. Yet when we come to Revelation chapter 19, this is the very same Jesus. The very same Jesus, and he is coming again, and this time all the earth will know, and he will not come alone. He is coming with his heavenly army, of which we are part of, and he is not coming to bring peace. He is coming to bring war. He has already come as the Prince of Peace. Now he is coming to show the world that he is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. And so what we find here is the fulfillment of the prophetic word of God. You say, I don't understand prophecy. I don't understand how it all fits together. I don't understand where it's all driving towards. I'll tell you where it's driving. It's driving right here. The prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4, he pointed to this very moment. He said, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. I think that is a great passage. I've been to Israel. I've stood on the Mount of Olives and I've looked west towards Jerusalem, the old city, and the the east gate and, and all of the... Muslims have built a a cemetery there outside the east gate, walled up the east gate of the ancient city of the wall that's there now and built a a cemetery there as if God won't walk through a cemetery. Jesus Christ is going to come and his feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives and that mountain will split apart north and east and a great valley will be there. Zechariah is prophesying about this moment right here in Revelation chapter 19. The words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24 point to this very moment. Matthew 24, verse 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. 
then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus Christ himself was telling the disciples about what is to come, and we see the unfolding of it right here in Revelation chapter 19. The fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of New Testament prophecy in the Gospels. And even the Apostle Paul gives us further details concerning this moment when he says to the believers in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is talking about the moment when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, this is that moment. This is that moment of which John had already said in chapter 1 and verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, unquote whole earth, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, upon the earth will see the coming of Jesus Christ. And if you do not know Christ, you will mourn, you will begin to mourn immediately because you know the day of judgment has arrived. So this is the grand fulfillment of God's prophetic word. This is where it drops. But it's not just the fulfillment of prophecy. This also is the fulfillment and climax of history. From the, from the very time that sin entered into the creation of God, man, in his history, his, he has gone from one sad departure and one sad defection away from God one time after another, over and over and over again, departing from God and, and not wanting anything to do with God over and over again, ever since the day sin entered into the world in the garden. And it is this day that the earth has been waiting for right here. Christ came to the earth the first time. His own did not recognize him. We read that in John chapter 1. Sentenced him to die. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. And as we have studied this book, and as we see the rebellion against God, it has gone on throughout the history of men. We know that another man will rise. One of a different origin, Revelation tells us. He is the Antichrist, described under the term the beast. And he will deceive many and he will gather mankind together in a, a last-ditch attempt to destroy all who are God's chosen people. But as we have studied, that rebellion will be answered by heaven as Christ here leads his army to crush the deceiver forever. You see, this is where history's moving. Is the world going to get better? Uh, not without Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate climax. 
You see, all those years of praying, how long, O Lord, how long is it going to take for you to come? Lord, come quickly. When is it going to happen? How much must we put up with? How much must this world put up with when it comes to sin? All of those prayers of the saints are now answered. You see, this is truly amazing. Prophecy is completely fulfilled. History is come to its climax. Mankind, having been stirred and and deceived in in his own heart and by the words of the Antichrist and the supernatural activity that God has allowed through the false prophet, they all gather against God. We saw this back in Revelation chapter 16. Remember the words at the end of the tribulation? Chapter 16, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, verse 13, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, and they, for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Somewhat in a parenthetical statement right there in verse 15 of chapter 16, behold, look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and man see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Final place of the war of the God, the Almighty. One commentator said it, quote, Earth faces the greatest crisis of its history and God acts. John says the heavens are opened and Christ comes to earth and everyone will see it. I love how it's stated in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, a psalm that speaks of the Messiah. And here is what it says. This is is just so profound. Why do the nations rage and the, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That is, against Yahweh, God the Father, and against Christ, the anointed one. They set themselves together. They take counsel together against God, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Rhetorical question asked, Why do the nations rage? Why do they do this? Verse 4 of Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens just laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That that means as scoffers, as mockers. They are in their place, mocking God. Then, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, this is God saying this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion, that's Jerusalem. I have set my king there perpetually. He will be a king forever. I will tell of the decree. Here's the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's the decree of God. Jesus Christ is the son. Son, you're going to be the king forever. That's the decree. It says to the son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalmist is bringing out the reality. Why, why do the nations rage against God? Why does any man rage against God? God just laughs at them. There's coming a day when wrath will come. 
It's foolishness. He's going to, going to rule you like someone with, with, with an iron rod that can smash you to pieces. And Psalm 2 gives this wise counsel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. S-O-N. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see? There in Psalm 2 is another fulfillment of the prophecy. Looking forward, the psalmist knew and saw and wrote about by God's design and God's uh, supernatural uh, intention to write these things about the whole event. About the nations coming together against God. About people rejecting His anointed one and about God laughing at them. And God saying, look, there is coming a day, so be warned. God in His graciousness, even in that, says, be warned. Kiss the sun. Don't do what you're doing. You have the building of rebellion of man against God and against His Christ. You have the prophetic word of God given and decreed. Then you have the only answer to man's problem, Jesus Christ. It's a gracious warning from a holy God. Serve the Lord. Serve Him in fear. Serve Him in reverence. Serve God. Kiss. Pay homage to the Son. Why? His wrath is coming. It will not be over quickly. All that is unfolded right here in Revelation chapter 19 as John sees our amazing sovereign ruler and this amazing supper and then finally the amazing slaughter of Christ's rejection. So as we come to these events of the second coming of Christ, we need to remember all that we have learned, the, the, the tribulation chronology. And we've done this over time as we've walked through this because we don't want to confuse the the unfolding of these things and thereby confuse even what has been said through the prophetic word. Remember, all of the seal, all of the trumpet, all of the bold judgments have been poured out. That all takes place the last three and a half years, if you will, of the of the tribulation, at least in their concentrated effort. It's begun from the beginning, the seven-year period. But in the middle, when the, when the uh, false religion is put aside and the Antichrist is raised up as the one is being worshipped, now these things are intensified by way of the judgments that are being poured out through the trumpet and the bold judgments. And so the world's false religious system, known as the great harlot Babylon, has been destroyed. And the economic center of the world, known as the city Babylon, has been left in a pile of just smoldering ash. And after all of the divine wrath, after the remaining people of the earth are gathered into armies and assembled for the last dish effort to unseat God from His throne, The battle that we know from Revelation chapter 16 as the battle of Armageddon 
the word of Revelation chapter 16, in fact, verse 14, that describes this very moment is the word war. War. Sometimes we might have a tendency to think this is a, 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 a minor skirmish in the grand history of the world. But that's not the word used here. The word used here is, is polemos, P-O-L-E-M-O-S is how it's spelled. And it means war. This is the war of the great day of God the Almighty. The whole earth is involved in warring against God. All that we live in now, all that history has had and gone past already up to the point when this happens is all a preparation for this very day. This is war against God. The whole earth involved. John sees in Revelation chapter 19, the heavens now open again. We've looked into heaven. John has gone through the door, and now he sees heaven opened again. And he sees the supreme ruler. And here in verse 11, we're given his name, and we're given his purpose. And that's all I want us to focus on this morning. It's his name and his purpose. This is none other than Jesus Christ. And I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Here we have his name, or, or one of his names, I should say, and the purpose for which he is coming. This is none other than Jesus Christ. And, and I think it's necessary for us to say that because many try to state at the beginning that this is not uh, the establishment of the kingdom by Jesus Christ, but that this is simply the establishment or reestablishment of the kingdom of God on earth by the church. You'll read that in theology books. These are post-millennial people. That's what the term is. But that can't be true according to Scripture. And one of the greatest reasons it can't be true according to Scripture is this passage right here. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. The king comes. He comes swiftly. He comes powerfully. And he is establishing the kingdom through his power. You notice in verse 20, the beast is seized. The false prophet is seized. The rest are killed. Chapter 20, verse 1, And I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan is bound. And verse 7 of chapter 20, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. One last final judgment. So this can't be the church establishing this. This is Christ coming in his power. This is Christ coming swiftly. This is Christ coming to establish the thousand year reign, his kingdom on earth. And he uses only one weapon. Notice verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. He only needs one weapon. 
and he smites the nations. I mean, he strikes them. He comes to judge. He, he comes to wage war. He establishes the kingdom. He establishes the kingdom, not the church. Some evangelicals believe that we can make the world a better place. We can speak directly against the forces of darkness. We can exercise demons. We can deliver souls by signs and wonders that will change the world. You may hear that sometimes as you are going through what is called Christian radio today. People preaching all kinds of nonsense. Listen, we cannot do any of those things. We're not given the power to do any of those things. And the thousand-year earthly reign of Christ is coming, and it will be set up by Christ. It is yet future. It hasn't happened yet. Post-millennials believe we are post the millennium. It hasn't happened yet, and we cannot make it happen. Christ will come. Christ will establish it, and it will come swiftly. That's why I brought up the term war. The term war there is a swift reality. It's not just something that is prolonged. It isn't over a prolonged period of time that Christ will somehow set up his kingdom. And therefore, as long as we do all the good things and we can uh, cast out demons and all that kind of stuff, we're setting up the kingdom. No, this is war. This is swift. This is not a long, prolonged period. This is quick and surgical. And so this is Jesus Christ. He is described here as coming in power. Notice, he comes on a white horse. Now, I want you to understand something. When it says horse there, don't get the idea that there are horses in heaven. John is using, in prophetic language, a a symbol to describe something in reality. Okay? That doesn't mean there's horses in heaven, that there's stables of horses in heaven, even when it says that the armies come uh, on riding following him on white horses. Just because we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse way back in chapter 4 doesn't mean there's horses in heaven. This is just language, John using something, seeing something, seeing reality, and yet explaining it in such a way to where we might understand it. But that doesn't mean that that there's horses in heaven or animals in heaven. There's no place in Scripture that would describe the reality of a soul of some kind of animal or that animals even have souls and they go to heaven. I know we love our animals. I've had this discussion with my mother time and time again because she believes her dog is going to be with her in heaven. Mom, I'm sorry. Your dog's not going to be there. In fact, it'll be a whole lot better than having a dog with you. But I just want to say that so we don't get that idea in our mind. And another thing, don't be confused here. This is not the same person as the one in chapter 6 on the white horse. Chapter 6, we saw one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse come on a white horse, but that one on that horse coming in with power, that's what this horse is kind of giving the idea of, coming in with power was the great deceiver. It wasn't Jesus Christ on that horse. This was the one who was the great deceiver who was coming as a victor. He had a a victor's crown on his head. He had a Stephanos, not a diadem. Christ has 
many diadems. And just like there with the idea of the horse and this prophetic language, Christ isn't coming with this big train of crowns rolling off of his head. The idea there is that he is king. The one in Revelation chapter 6 had a Stephanos, and he would gain victory not through a weapon. He had no weapons. All he had was his words. All he had was his deception. But this one is wholly different than that one. This one comes with words of truth. He comes with a crown of a ruler. He comes with a king's crown, a diadem. That's not the the crown of a victor like the wreath that they might give to somebody in the Olympic Games as they did in the early days. This is a king's crown. Is it any wonder that he is called faithful and true? He is called faithful and true. There couldn't be a more accurate name for the Lord Jesus Christ, could there? Back in chapter 3, in verse 14, he is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness. And so here... This is Jesus. Jesus Christ is identified again as faithful and true. And what could be more accurate? That's that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. He is the faithful to all of His promises. Jesus Christ has failed in none of His promises. And He is faithful to do exactly what the Father has asked Him to do. He is faithful to the promises He has given, and He is faithful to obey exactly as the Father asked Him. He said, I came to do the will of my Father. He is faithful. And notice, He only speaks what is truth. His promise that He would come. He told His disciples in John 14, Don't be, don't be troubled, I go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back for you. Same promise to all of us, I'm I'm coming for you. And he promised he would come, and now we see that happening. He's faithful. His words are true. He's the true one who returns to the earth to confront the one who is the personification of faithlessness. The faithful one, the true one, is coming to, to stand in direct opposition to the one that is not true, to the one who is faithless, to the one who is consistently false. And so what you have here in verse 11 is both the title of Christ and a name for Christ. He is faithful and true in action. He is faithful and true in everything he says. Why? Because he is faithful and true. This is his very nature. This is his very character. This is who he is by quality. It's not simply what he does and therefore that's what makes him faithful and true. No, he acts in a way that is faithful and true because he is by quality faithful and true. What's he doing? What's he doing when he comes? Verse 11 says, in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Righteousness, everything he does is right. It is right. He is faithful, true, and everything he does is from that which is right. And we know this. We understand this. But sometimes we get sucked into thinking wrongly about it. 
Sometimes we get sucked into thinking that God operates on some kind of scale of fairness. That God is capricious and judges and does things by, by what is fair. No, God only judges and God even makes war on the basis of righteousness. See, God judged us on the basis of righteousness if you know Jesus Christ. God has judged you on the basis of the righteousness of His Son, not based upon yours, because you have none. See, and because He is faithful and true by quality, then in everything He does is righteous because He is the personification of righteousness, you see? Just the same way about being faithful and true, everything he does is righteous because he is the personification of righteousness. When you see Jesus Christ, you see righteousness. When you see Jesus Christ, you see faithfulness. When you see Jesus Christ, you see everything that is true. When you stand anything near the qualities of Jesus Christ, everything else pales in comparison because he is what is by quality Righteous, faithful, and true. Jesus Christ came the first time as Savior. He came so that the righteous judgment of God would fall upon Him so that in that judgment, those who would believe in Him would be saved. Would be saved from the judgment and the final everlasting judgment to come. But in this second coming, He will come as the judge. Amazingly, he will wage war. I think this is very, very fascinating. He, when Christ returns, he will come as a warrior against the ungodly. He will not come as a savior. He will not come with salvation in his heart, salvation on his mind. He will not come saving people. He will come as a warrior. He will come against the unbelieving. He will come against the wicked and against the sinful. Isn't that amazing? The one who has endured such heinous activity against him with patience, the one who has endured the mocking insults of man over the centuries, who has thought about and yet turned their backs upon a God who has graciously offered salvation to everyone who has an ear, anyone who can hear it. He has offered the gracious gift of salvation in His Son. They will now stand face to face with God and with hatred and contempt in their heart. Christ will come to those who have rejected Him and they will not have peace. They will not have the peace of the cross that those who find Christ through faith will have. They will face the King of glory and they will not face Him as Savior. They will face Him as the judge in their own personal war against God. Now that is amazing. It is amazing that you and I today sit here saved. It is amazing that God would allow us as one little piece of nothingness in His creation to have such a great privilege based upon the gift of His Son. That is amazing. The return of Jesus Christ will be absolutely stunning. And in light of that return, the Apostle Paul, I think, had this very reality on his mind. When he was writing the book of Romans, 
And I just want us to turn really quickly back to Romans chapter 5, and we'll end with this this morning. Because this is also overwhelmingly amazing. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In one simple sentence there in verse 6, Paul has now equated all of humanity, lumped in all of those who he would ever save into the group of those who could in no way save themselves. They are described by the term the ungodly. That's you and I. Prior to our salvation in Jesus Christ, that's the group we're in. We are the ungodly. Paul says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. In other words, it's almost like as if in humanity someone wouldn't even think twice about dying for someone who is such high a scale on their, on their own uh, sense of righteousness and worldly scale that, that if they're up here as a great person, people would go, yeah, I'd die for that guy. One would hardly die for that person. Even perhaps, verse 7 For the good man, someone would even dare to die. In other words, if you want fairness, there's there's a system of fairness that in humanity, all humanity can see. For for someone who is is a, a righteous person, I mean, all the world would say, yeah, I'd die for that guy. Even a good man, some would even perhaps die for that person. But God, but God demonstrates his own love. See, his love's not like the world's love. This is his own love. This is a love born out of God who who is always right, who always does what's right, who is faithful and and true. This is his own love. He, He demonstrates his own love toward us. I am so glad that it was his own love and not the world's kind of love that God demonstrated toward us. Because if it was the world's kind of love, which you find there in verse 7, that's the world's kind of love. It's that kind of love. I I dare say there wouldn't be anybody who would die for me. Nobody would describe me as a righteous guy or or a good guy. I'd just be the status quo kind of guy. I'd I'd be the guy that people would say, well, yeah, you're good, but, but you're not that good. You're not that righteous. But God demonstrated His own love in that while... I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. And it was at the right time. It was at the right moment. The right place in history. The right point in God's redemptive history of all whom he would save. The right point in which Christ died for the ungodly. That was the demonstration of God's own love. You see, that's amazing. The second coming of Jesus Christ for those who believe in Jesus Christ is going to be a wonderful moment. It's going to be a moment in which we we ride in with Christ as Christ destroys all those who have rejected Him and sets up His earthly kingdom and we rejoice with Him for a thousand years until the final day of judgment of all those who 
who are still under the judgment of God because they're not enveloped in the righteousness of Christ and the judgment seat of God is there and the books are opened and their deeds are weighed and all of them become up with a failure sign because none of them are righteous on their own and they all go into hell forever and ever and ever and a new heaven and a new earth is inaugurated by God. That will be a glorious day. But that day is, is just as glorious right here in, Revela- in Romans chapter 5, the day when Christ died for the ungodly. When God demonstrated his own love toward us. You see, the reality is, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know this. You don't know this amazing reality. You don't know the demonstration of God's love toward you. Because you don't believe you're yet a sinner. In need of God's gracious salvation in his son. But if you do know that, then Paul says, listen, much more than having been justified by his blood? You think, well, what could be more than that? What could be more than that? Than having been justified by his blood, he says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. You see, the reason that you and I won't have to stand on that day under the wrath of the coming one is because the coming one has enveloped us in his righteousness when he died on the cross. having been justified by that death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. Why? Because while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Now much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His blood. You see, that's amazing. Revelation chapter 19 is such a grand event. This is truly the amazing reality. And yet, right alongside that, on the same uh, coin, if you will, on the opposite side is the reality of our justification in this one who is coming. And we are saved from this wrath to come because God demonstrated His own love that we might have. Oh, what a joy it's going to be. This is just the flavor, the flavor of all that will take place. John begins to further explain in Revelation chapter 19 who this one is that we know already. And so we get a little more picture of of what's going on when he comes and how he will wage this surgical war. And then the outcome. The aftermath of that incredible reality. This amazing event where the birds of heaven gather together to eat the flesh. Sounds a bit grotesque, but God put it here for our understanding. There's some interesting things you'll want to know about migration patterns and the birds of heaven that fly and where they fly. And the most busiest airways, if you will, over what part of the world that happens. God is already preparing for that day. Well, let's pray. Father, we're grateful once again for this view of the grandeur and glory of your second coming. 
Lord, it's not a trivial moment. We dare not treat it like we treat everything else. This moment ought to stand out in our hearts and our minds as something that is so beyond comprehension. Something that is truly uh, stunning. You have told us that you are coming. You have shown us the purposes behind your coming. And here we see the reality. And oh, what a joy it is to our hearts knowing that we will be there. We'll be with you. Your glorious bride, the church, will be right there with you coming in as you smite the nations and judge those who have rejected you. Lord, you've told us that while we are here, we're to be a faithful instrument in your hand to go and to share the gospel, to tell people about this coming day and about the love which you have shown us. That they too can know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That they too can, can avoid the wrath to come if they would just simply embrace Jesus Christ by faith. So we pray this morning that that would indeed take place. I know there are those here, some who, a group this size, who do not know you. They never have known you. They continue even today possibly to be rejecting you. Father, we pray that they would not continue in that way, that you would break their heart of sin. And there are those here who have grown up in homes and have professed a belief in Jesus Christ, but their life shows no evidence of real salvation. Lord, we pray as well that you would break their heart, that you would open their eyes to the true reality of these things, that you would shake them to the very core in their heart, that they would kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, and thereby not have to sit under your wrath. For every day that goes by by which they reject Jesus Christ, your word tells us they are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Lord, by your grace, would you open their eyes? Would you save them? Cause them to be repentant? That it would be truly a true repentance, not one of simple remorse because they know they're guilty, but that they would truly repent, turn from their sin, and walk in obedience to you. Thank you for the view of heaven the great joy that we will find when we are with Christ. That the only answer for this world is Jesus Christ. And so we go with the, the truth of the gospel. We know the enemy hates that. We know he doesn't want the gospel shared. We know he wants to deceive. But Lord, we pray that you would superintend those moments and cause the hearts of people who don't know you to be open. To receive the seed of the gospel that they too might know our joy because our joy is in your Son. So thank you for our time this morning. Bless our time this evening as we spend it with Dr. Mitchell. May we be enriched by what is happening around the world through the gospel efforts. And may you be honored through it all because of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.